looking at uh, 2 Peter. I was talking to somebody this morning about one of the joys of preaching our way through books of the Bible is that you can't duck the hard subjects. Okay, and that is certainly the case uh, this morning. And this letter of um, uh, 2 Peter, Peter begins it by calling his first readers and you and me to live a life of virtue. Okay, and as you read through it, it begins to become obvious why. Because there are clearly people in the churches that Peter is writing to who are encouraging the other members to do the opposite of what Peter is calling them to do. To not be, con- to not, you don't need to pursue a life of virtue. You don't need to be constrained by Peter's and the apostles' teaching. You can live how you want to live. And if you think about it, that is not exactly irrelevant for us, is it? Because, I mean, how, how are you supposed to live? What should, what should guide you in the way you live? As we saw um, last week, should the Bible take that place? Should that be your guide? Or rather, should it be the messages that you hear all around you outside in the world? Is Peter's call to us to live a life of virtue, is that the right one? Or is the key to happiness, hey, just get enough money, earn enough money, have enough sex, and generally get your own way? Is that the way to be happy? Okay, but what if you do think that, and you pursue those things, and they end up destroying the very thing that you're looking for? And that is exactly what Peter is addressing in this passage. And he calls that approach to life, false so this morning we are going to look at four things okay i've got into the habit of doing four things after last week okay so we're going to look at the reality of false teaching the nature of false teaching the condemnation of false teaching and the rescue of christ so it's going to get better by the end okay first point then the reality of false teaching now, if you, um, if you, you know, watch the news and there's been a big bank robbery or some gold bullion heist, okay, the question inevitably gets asked, was it an inside job? Did somebody on the inside, were they in on this? Or think about the situation in wartime. You know, there's the enemy over there, the enemy on the other side of the trench, but what about the people behind our own lines? The people who are supposed to be on our side, but are actually working for and supporting the enemy. You know, the so-called fifth column, or the enemy within, what about them? Because when it comes to the Christian faith, as one writer puts it, the undermining of the faith is usually an inside job. Okay, churches. Churches generally do not go down to enemy far from the outside, but from saboteurs on the inside. Okay, look at verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And if you hear last week, you'll remember how Peter has been explaining how the Old Testament prophets wrote and spoke through the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But those, those guys, they weren't the only ones speaking, were they, Peter says. They're also false prophets. 
like the ones that the prophet Jeremiah had to contend with in his day. Because when he was warning the people about the coming judgment of God, which eventually came through the Babylonian invasion and exile captivity, there were other people saying at that time, don't listen to Jeremiah. He is so negative. I mean, he is so narrow-minded. God is not going to judge us. God is going to bless us. As Jeremiah famously said at the time, they were preaching peace, peace, when there is no peace. But if you think about it, history has this habit of repeating itself, doesn't it? Because if there were false prophets in Jeremiah's day, Peter says there are also false teachers among you. And interesting, what becomes clear in Peter is that their message was strangely similar to that that the false prophets in Jeremiah's day were peddling. You know, Peter and the apostles are telling you that Jesus is coming back, that judgment is coming. You don't want to believe that. That is so negative. That is so narrow-minded. You, you, don't, you don't need to live in fear of that kind of stuff or those kind of fairy tales. Don't let that stuff stop you from living the way that you want to live. Okay, but notice what Peter actually says. First one again. Just as there will be false teachers among you. He's using the future tense. So it's not just that there were false teachers in these churches in Peter's day that he's writing to. It's that this is going to be an ongoing problem in the life of the church. And history has proved Peter right, hasn't it? Second point then, the nature of false teaching. So the reality of it is going to happen. It does happen. It is happening. But what's the nature of it? Verse 1 again. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now, when we think of something being done secretively, we tend to think of sort of spy thrillers, don't we? Or, you know, war novels or whatever. We tend to think of stuff being done under the cover of darkness, you know, cloak and dagger stuff. But this, this uh, phrase, secretly bring in, it's a hard one to translate. And it's why, you know, depending on what version of the Bible you've got, you might just, it may not mention secret. It may just say bring in, or it may say cleverly teach. And that's because it has this sense of people bringing in stuff in addition to. People sneaking stuff in alongside the apostles' teaching. Because however they're doing it, however public they are about it, however upfront they are about it, False teaching is always either adding to or subtracting from the gospel. You just think about how it can be adding to. Yeah, there is Jesus. We get that. But something else other than him, something else other than him and his work and his glory is more important. And it begins to take center stage. And this is what the people, this is what they're always talking about. And in all of these additions, the gospel gets lost. It's like a, it's like a beautiful, full-color storybook that is buried under one volume after another of textbooks on algebra. And you lose the beauty of the gospel. They add all of this stuff till you can't make out the gospel anymore. 
Or think about how they might subtract from the gospel. Yes, there is Jesus, but all that stuff in the Bible about what you should believe or how you should live, you don't need that. You can dispense with that. That's so first century. And they chip away and erode the gospel like termites eating away at the foundation of a house until there is no gospel left, until there's no home left to shelter in. So they either add to the gospel or they subtract from it. And so in telling us this, Peter tells us two things about their teaching. Well, he tells us three things, actually. We're only going to look at two. He, he tells us it's attractive. False teaching is attractive. But it's also destructive. It's attractive and destructive. Now, it's also exploitative. Okay, but we're not going to look at that. It's attractive, but it's destructive. Firstly, it was attractive. Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. Now, Athanasius was the uh, 4th century bishop of Alexandria, and for years he battled the heresy of Arianism. It's Jesus minus gospel. And sometimes he fought, sometimes he, sometimes Athanasius had to fight that battle pretty much alone. He's so alone that he was nicknamed Athanasius Contramundum. Athanasius against the world. But if you asked Athanasius, he would have told you the numbers have got absolutely nothing to do with it. Because loads of people can be embracing something or agreeing with some new way of seeing life or interpreting the Bible. The majority, everyone, apart from one, can be doing that. And it still be wrong. It's why in verses 5 to 7, Peter uses the example of Noah and his family and then Lot being rescued from divine judgment. Because what is one family in the entire world? What is, what is one man in a city? I mean, talk about a minority. Sure, Peter says, but they may still be right. The numbers have got nothing to do with it. It's why in his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton recommends that we should always remember what he calls the majority of the dead. Sure, everyone in our time might be falling over themselves to agree with some new teaching or affirm some lifestyle. And those who don't may be in a very small minority. But Chesterton asks, yeah, but what have the majority over the years past taught? What is the church? What have the saints who have gone before us? The, what have the majority of the dead taught over the years? But you've also got to ask the question, what makes it so attractive? Why do so many people go for false teaching? What makes what the false teachers are teaching so attractive? Okay, Peter tells us, doesn't he? Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. So the advertisers are right, aren't they? Sex sells. Okay, even surprisingly, when it comes to theology... Because when Peter talks in verse 4 about the angels when they sinned, he's almost certainly thinking about this somewhat strange episode in Genesis chapter 6, where it seems that the angels had sexual relationships with women. 
And when he talks in verses 6 to 7 of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sensual conduct of the wicked, and then in verse 10 about the lust of defiling passion, okay, it's pretty clear that Peter is addressing these false teachers' teaching on sex. Okay, because what is going to be more attractive? Living the self-controlled life of virtue that Peter's calling them to and us? Or you know, embracing a Christian sexual ethic? Or throwing that aside and embracing whomever you want to embrace? What's going to be more appealing? What's going to be more attractive? But of course, again, if history repeats itself, some things never change, do they? You see here, I mean, here's a controversial one. Here, Peter raises the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in our day, that inevitably, well, in his day as well, inevitably raises the question of same-sex relationships. And are they acceptable for Christians today? And, you know, I mean, even in just in the last week, you will find plenty of churches that say, yes, it's okay for Christians to do that. Peter is clearly saying no, but again, what's more attractive? What the church has always taught, without exception, until the last few years, or this new teaching that has been brought in alongside? What is more attractive to be told, I mean, what, what would you rather, to be told you are a bigot, you are a hater, or you're loving, you're affirming, you're inclusive, we approve of you. What's more attractive, what's more appealing to be told you are on the wrong side of history or to be told you're on the right side of history? But like Athanasius, Peter is saying, however hard it is, however much in the minority you might feel and however costly this might be for you personally, the numbers have got absolutely nothing to do with it. You see, in verse 2, Peter calls Christianity the way of truth. So it is a way. It is, it is a way of being in the world. It is a lifestyle. But it is a lifestyle based on truth, the truth of God's word. And as for being on the wrong side of history, Peter would say, but maybe your view of history is too short term. Maybe you're not looking far enough down history to the end of history. Okay, and yet, if we think that when Peter talks of sensuality, or Sodom and Gomorrah, or defiling passion, if we think that he's just got homosexuality or same-sex relationships in mind, we are missing the point. Because whenever... The New Testament writers address sexual immorality. They are thinking of any sexual activity, any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. The Christian sexual ethic is incredibly narrow. It's why the um, uh, epistle of Diognetus, written sometime in the second century, says that um, these early Christians shared their bread not their bed. Okay, they were marked by a deeply countercultural approach to the dignity of people. And that influenced the way they treated the poor and it influenced what they did with their bodies. They shared their bread, 
not their bed. Plus, Jesus said that if you even have, if you even think a lustful thought, that is to commit adultery in your heart. So Peter, so sorry, Jesus raises the bar so high that all of us stand guilty. It's not just them over there. All of us stand guilty. The problem is these false teachers would say, yeah, but you're not really guilty. You, didn't, you should not feel guilty about you just being you. Don't listen to Peter. Now, maybe you think something similar. Okay, maybe you hear all of this stuff and maybe you think, you know, whether or not you're, uh, you know, you don't even have to be a non-Christian to think like this. Maybe, maybe you think, why are Christians so obsessed with sex? and what people do with their bodies. Why this obsession? Well, we look at why Peter says it matters in a moment. But you already know that what you do with your body matters. You already know that your body matters. Or else why do you exercise? Why do you diet? Why are there some foods or drugs that you avoid and others that you take? Why do you go to the doctor when your body hurts? And given our particular cultural moment, if the body doesn't matter, why does the person who thinks they are transgender want to surgically alter their body if it's not that their body stands in evidence against them? We all know the body matters. The real issue is that we want to be able to do with our bodies whatever we want. And provided we're not hurting anyone else and provided there is consent, no one should tell me otherwise. Okay, but if you look at it, that is the second reason why this false teaching was so attractive. Verse 10. They despise authority. And from what Peter um, writes in his first letter, what he writes in this one, I think he's got three things. When he's thinking authority, he's probably got three things in mind. Firstly, the authority of angels, which we'll get to next week. Secondly, the authority of those whom God places over us in society, like our parents and families, like employers in the workplace, like leaders in the church, like governments in the state. And as one commentator puts it, these false teachers are so convinced of their own interpretations and teaching, they won't submit to anyone. They despise authority. But over all of that, thirdly, it's the authority of Christ that they are despising. Verse 1 again. They bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And Peter is using the language of the slave market. And at one time, uh, these false teachers would have appeared to be true and loyal servants of Christ, bought by Christ, set free by Christ to serve Christ. But now they're backtracking on all of that. By, the, by what they teach and by the way they live, it has become obvious Jesus is not their master their master is themselves. But as Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, which is struggling with its own sexual issues, 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. But again, what seems more attractive, what seems more appealing, to have Christ as your master, with this narrow sexual ethic, with your life being conformed to him, or to be told that you can be your own master and you can make the rules and you can decide for yourself how you are going to live. Except, have you ever had that experience of picking up an apple and this apple looks red and juicy and you think this is going to taste so great but you bite into it and it's it's soft and it's woolly and it is tasteless and peter is saying sure this this kind of teaching may look attractive but in reality secondly it's destructive first one again they secretly bring in destructive heresies and it's destructive on a whole number of false teaching is destructive on a whole number of levels you know as we've already seen it's dis, it destroys the true gospel the good news it tells you either jesus is less than he is or you need to do more than jesus to be saved and to come into god's kingdom so it's destructive because it destroys the gospel but it's also destructive because it robs you of the very thing you are looking for and you already know how this works Okay, just think about technology. Think about that gadget in your pocket or think about you know, watching young people you know, at bus stops, sat with their friends and they've all got their gadgets in their hand. They're looking at this, not, not talking to their friends. In her book, Generations, Jean Twenge, professor of psychology at San Diego State University, she writes about the ironic impact of social media. It's ironic because the whole premise of social media is that it's going to bring us together. It's going to deepen our friendships, it's going to enrich our lives. But in reality, she says, it has done the opposite. It drives people apart, it has increased divisions in society, it leaves people more anxious and in fear of missing out and addicted to their gadgets when they could be talking to their friends who are actually sat next to them. So we know how this works, how something can promise you something, but it actually robs you of the very thing you're looking for. And Peter says false teaching does exactly the same. You see, Twenge, she also argues that while trust in, trust overall is decreasing, in society so trust in families the evidence shows trust in families trust in institutions trust in government are all on decline all in decline so trust is going down but at the same time as trust going down support for gay marriage is going up as is the desire to make lots of money some things are going down some things are going up why and the answer she says is individualism Life really is about me. I should be able to live the way I want to. Nobody should be able, no one, no institution, no family, no government should be able to tell me how to live. And to pursue wealth enables me to live the kind of life I want to live. But of course, as Twenge points out, it's not just trust that's in decline, 
so is happiness. All the data suggests it. We are wealthier than ever, but we're more unhappy than ever. Okay, well, think of media and Hollywood and what they tell you about sex, okay? Because they will tell you the way to have great sex, the way to be happy, is to throw off these archaic Christian views, this narrow Christian sexual ethic, and have sex with whoever you want, provided there's consent. And yet you know what the evidence shows? All the evidence shows that people are having less sex than ever. The one group for whom that is not the case is married couples. So false teachers tell you, forget this stuff about Christ being your master. Throw off all of this stuff about virtue. Forget about there being a coming judgment and you will be happy, you'll be fulfilled, you'll be having loads of sex. And in reality, it's a destructive heresy. It robs you of the very thing that it promises you. It destroys the thing that you are looking for. So firstly, it's destructive because it undermines the gospel. Secondly, it's destructive because it robs you. Thirdly, it is destructive because it tells people that it is fine to live the kind of lives you want to live, and yet those are the kind of lives that put you at risk of eternal judgment. As Paul writes, do not be deceived. Guys, that means you can be deceived. This means you can think that you are right and Paul is wrong. You can be deceived. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As Peter says in verse one, they're bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There are some lifestyles that are inconsistent with being a Christian. You cannot be a Christian and live like this. Third point then, the condemnation of false teaching. Okay, look at verse three. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Okay, so here are these guys telling the churches, look, this stuff about future judgment, you do not need to worry about that. When it's that very denial that is putting them at risk of future judgment, Peter says. And, he says, history makes it clear God has got a track record of judging the wicked. Verses four to nine. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, and if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In other words, turning our backs on God always ends in judgment, and unrighteousness always ends in ruin. 
Now again, maybe you hear that and think, yeah, but come on, this is very one-sided. I mean, sure, surely Jesus was much more affirming than that. Surely he was much more loving than that. Here's one well-known pastor said this week, Jesus draws circles, not lines. Sure, but Jesus is often pointed out, Jesus spoke about eternal judgment more than anyone. And in Luke 17, he uses the same examples as Peter of the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, so you could hear that and uh, you could go, well, frankly, if that is what Christianity is about, I am done with it, or I'm done with this church anyway. I want to say to you, are you? Are you really? You see, deep down, we all have a deep sense of justice. Okay, we all do. You know that there should be some accounting for wrong things that are done. But who can make that call? Can you? Can I? Who, who but God can can decide what is right or wrong. Who but God can weigh everybody's motives, all, all, all the conflicting things that might come into somebody, somebody making a decision. Who, who but God can be judge? So if only he can bear that weight, surely we have to leave the law and what is true or false to him. Plus, as we've seen, if you do turn your back on Christianity, if you do pursue a life of individualism and pleasure, it'll rob you of the very happiness that you are seeking. Okay, but maybe you have the opposite reaction. Okay, maybe you think, well, I've got no problem with this. I am all in favour of these people getting judged. They are what is wrong with the world. Except the Bible says... No, it's not them over there. It's this in here. It's our hearts. That's what's wrong with the world. We're all what's wrong with the world. And the very things that we condemn other people of, the Bible says, Romans chapter 2, we are guilty of ourselves. So Peter says there is a much better response to coming judgment. Last point then. The rescue of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but um, for me, reading uh, this passage and all that Peter says about uh, the coming judgment, there is one thing in it that I think is just a little perplexing. Okay, and it is the way he describes Lot. Verse 7 Righteous Lot. Righteous? Righteous? Have you read the Bible, Peter? I mean, do you know what this man did? This is the man, Peter, this is the guy who offered his daughters to a mob who were demanding sex with his guests. Righteous? This is the man who had to be practically dragged out of Sodom before destruction fell. This is the man who, having been rescued, promptly got so drunk that his daughters could have sex with him. You're telling me he's righteous? Surely he's a man who is so immersed, so ethically and morally blunted by his surrounding culture, the culture of Sodom, that he is anything but righteous. 
Except when Peter calls him righteous, he's drawing on a long line of Jewish tradition that makes exactly the point that Peter is making. That Lot was righteous, as Peter says in verse 7, and that he was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And when prior to uh, Sodom's destruction, Abraham pleads with God to save the city if there are any righteous people there and asks God to withhold judgment, finally, if there are only 10 righteous people there, the fact that God does rescue Lot but proceeds to destroy the city tells you that in comparison to everyone else there, God considered him righteous that there was still something about what was going on there that bothered him. So listen, we may not have rescued Lot, but God did. Why? Because God is way more merciful than we are. Because he is merciful to those who don't deserve it. He is merciful to people like Lot and to people like you and me. You see, think how Peter describes these false teachers. Verse 1, they are denying the master who bought them. And as we've seen, that is the language of the slave market. But the implication is, you're a slave. We're all slaves. Slaves to sin. Slaves to individualism. Slaves to the false promises of individualism. But the gospel tells us that Christ has bought our freedom. He's paid for it. He has unchained us from sin and the judgment that our sin deserves. And he has brought us out into his mercy and forgiveness. But what did he have to pay? What did he have to give to set us free from judgment? Himself, his own life the righteous for the unrighteous, the one truly righteous man gave himself for all of us who are unrighteous, just like Lot. It's why having told um, us and the Corinthians about all the people who, if they carry on living this way, will not inherit the kingdom of God, including sexual sinners, Paul immediately follows it up with, and such were some of you, but no longer, because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. The righteous one stepped into your place. You see, our past, our sin and our sexuality is not what defines us. Christ and his forgiveness and his mercy and our identity in him, that is what defines us. And if God has a track record of judging wickedness, Peter says he also has a track record of rescuing all those who look to him for help. Verses five to nine. If he preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, and if he rescued righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, even when you are in a minority, even when being faithful to him is going to cost you dearly. 
You see, that word trials could also be translated temptation. Okay, so it's not just that when you put your trust in Christ and come to him for washing, it's not just that he will see you safely through the judgment to come, which he will. It's that between now and the judgment to come, you and I get to live in a world running full tilt after expressive individualism. And that means you will be tempted. You are going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted by sex. You're going to be tempted by money. You're going to be tempted to despise authority. You're going to be tempted by whatever. But take heart, Peter says. God knows how to rescue you from that. But you've got to trust him. Christ has got to be your master. And listen, he is no cruel despot. Jesus loved you so much, he gave his life for you to wash you clean. So however hard the life of obedience might be for you, you can trust him. As a book of common prayer says, his service is perfect freedom. Let's pray.